Nyarlathotep, the crawling chaos. I am the last, and I will tell the audient void. This episode of the Myth of the 20th Century is brought to you by the oft-maligned, ever-nefarious, and frequently sporadic Tales from the Trough. New episode appearing on the TRS network, Spreaker.com, and anywhere you will find non-Euclidean radio theater. Coming out sooner or later. I do not recall distinctly when it began, but it was months ago. The general tension was horrible. To a season of political and social upheaval was added a strange and brooding apprehension of hideous physical danger. A danger widespread and all-embracing. Such a danger as may be impaired only in the most terrible phantasms of the night. I recall that the people went about with pale and worried faces and whispered warnings and prophecies which no one dared consciously repeat or acknowledge to himself that he had heard. A sense of monstrous guilt was upon the land, and out of the abysses between the stars swept chill currents and made men shiver in dark and lonely places. There was a demonic alteration in the sequence of the seasons. The autumn heat lingered fearsomely, and everyone felt that the world and perhaps the universe had passed from the control of known gods or forces to that of gods or forces which were unknown. I did not trade arms for hostages. Happy Halloween. Welcome to the Halloween special episode of the Myth of the 20th Century. For this special episode, we are joined by two of my friends. Uh, We have Rudy and Titus. How are you boys doing? Pretty good. Thank you for having us on. Yes, thank you. And they are not the friends of myself and Hans, of course, just Nick. Sworn and bitter enemies. Yeah, don't like them. (laughs) Well, I, I specifically, this was something, the topic today is something that uh, is near and dear to me, and so I, I was thinking of who I would most like to join me to talk about this, and uh, Titus and Rudy were the, were the boys that came to mind. That topic, of course, is going to be the work of H.P. Lovecraft. So we will be discussing various eldritch abominations, you know, horrors from uh, beyond the colors of time, etc., uh, I know that, uh, unfortunately Hank cannot be with us. I know that he is also a big fan of the program or of, sorry, of the, yeah. <laughs> I would hope so. Strong endorsement. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's always given us like really shitty reviews. I don't know if we want that guy like, associated with the show. Yeah. Gave us like a thumbs down on Rotten Tomatoes for one of the episodes. Not, not having him back. <laughs> But otherwise, yes, uh, Hans is here, as you can tell, as well as Adam. How are you guys doing? Not bad. Well, uh, are you ready for the uh, the last American election? I yeah. forgot. 
I don't even. Yeah, I don't even know when it, when it's happening. I just happened four years ago. Yeah. <laughs> well, this will be when the when people listen to this program. This will be the last show uh, before the election. Um, so we'll see uh, what world we wake up in. Maybe it'll be, you know, crawling with tentacled abominations. Or just, you know, I think it already is. I think I, think I, I heard something about for, that on, like, the Biden laptop or something like, you know, tentacle <laughs> porn or something with one of the Obama daughters. I don't know. Black magic from the Orient. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Obama nations. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Good pun. So, I, okay, the way what we did here was uh, we assembled a list of 10 Lovecraft stories that we would like to talk about or say a few words about essentially our top 10 list. And our methodology is not exactly precise here. What we did was um, Titus and I both picked five and one of those overlapped and then Rudy picked one. Uh, so that rounds us out to 10. And so we'll go through them in no particular order. But before we be, it's a non-Euclidean way to yeah, uh, in a, in a um, <laughs> compile a top ten list. <laughs> we will actually be going in a backwards order from outside of time. So yes. Just so you know, if you can follow along, uh, follow along the progression of the spheres. So, uh, I would like to say maybe start set the scene a little bit. Because the, the idea here is not to give an exhaustive treatment of each of these stories. Some of these we could easily spend two or three hours talking about on their own. However, just we would like to flesh out some of the themes and ideas that make Lovecraft an enduring writer today. And so before we get into the list proper, let's talk a little bit about the man and set the scene. So uh, which of you would like to, to provide us with some, some biographical detail on Lovecraft? I'll leave it open to you, to the guests here. Sure. Um, well, Howard, uh, Howard Phillips Lovecraft uh, is uh, old stock American from uh, from New England. Uh, born in uh, 1890, died in 1937 of the uh, sad young age of 46. Um, he lived... Uh, in obscurity and poverty, um, writing uh, and uh, sort of um, composing short stories, novellas, as well as corresponding with the burgeoning um, weird fiction and horror fiction uh, compatriots that he was writing with, such as um, Howard uh, of the um, Conan the Barbarian uh, of fame, as well as uh, Durlith and uh, Robert Block, um, and um, yeah, he's he's one of the great uh, American authors, um, one of the great artists of the right, um, and uh, he's someone that I think is, I would I would hope is is sort of mandatory reading for for everyone sort of in our circles, um, not just for. Uh, his prose, which I find to be pretty great, pretty exemplary, um, but just the 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 fusion of gothic uh, literature, of gothic horror, as well as science fiction, it's really unique, and um, it, it creates a, a real sort of potent um, 
potent themes and and uh, sort of visuals and, and and metaphors that can really stay with you for a really long time. Um, I started I picked up Lovecraft in high school. Um, I was sort of you know getting into horror fiction and the like, um, and I, I picked them up when I was I think fourteen or fifteen, and I've been reading him every year since. Um, he really is a a, a, a treat um, and a privilege to uh, to read and to discuss. Thank you, Titus. And I, I think I was negligent here in my duties as a host because you started getting into the question which I really should have asked, uh, but since you've answered it, I can put it to everyone else. Namely, what was your first experience with Lovecraft? How did you how did you come to encounter his work, et cetera? Uh, Rudy, and then our hosts. Sure. Um, well, actually, I remember the, the very first time I heard mention of Lovecraft, uh, I was at an older relative's house and they had the old sci-fi channel on and there was some ad for a movie or a TV show. I don't remember what it was, but they like went out of their way to mention that there were Lovecraftian themes involved in it. And being, I think I was like nine. I just, the word Lovecraft, I'd never heard that before. I was like, is that a name? Is that like a form of craft? Like what is it? So it had this like weird, kind of it conjured up all these like strange images and and then I it just the question went unanswered until yeah same as Titus around 14 or 15 I got into actually reading his work um because I had been a John Carpenter fan for a long time and always heard you know Lovecraft brought up in relation to his films like The Thing and you know uh, in the Mouth of Madness but it wasn't until I read his books that I understood like that he had impacted pretty much every horror author and like horror director that I liked, you know, and, and Hellboy too, because I, I was uh, into the comic books when they, not like superhero comics, but like, I really liked Dark Horse comics like Robocop and Aliens and all their weird, like um, Gen X, like underground comics, you know, and there was, there were always Lovecraftian themes in those. So that's, that's how I came into contact with his work. Adam Hans, is there anything that you would like to say? Uh, I think I first heard of it when I was a teenager in high school because I heard they were making a movie called uh, you know, "At the Mountains of Madness" or some you know along those lines, and I heard, oh, they're going to have uh, Guillermo del Toro direct. And I always liked his film uh, "Pan's Labyrinth," and I liked some of his other work, so I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. What? What even is that? And so then I, I think I, you know, went to Wikipedia. I found, oh, it's a book by this author, H.P. Lovecraft. And uh, I think I had vaguely heard of, like, Cthulhu and stuff like that before. And so then it kind of clicked that it was all sort of tied back to this guy. And um, so over the years, you know, I've read a few of Lovecraft's stories. I've read Call of Cthulhu. I've read a few of the shorter stories. Um, watched, I think, you know, or you kind of you come across stuff when you're in the dissident scene about old Jonathan Bowden videos and H.P. Lovecraft, a lot, the the 150 various articles on countercurrents on H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft. I I definitely read several of those over the years just as they came along. Um, I think I always had somewhat of an appreciation for just the uh, less of the. Um, 
the storytelling and more just the mythos and sort of the cosmic metaphysics that he was trying to create or trying to explore and kind of that intersection with declining Gilded Age America and how a lot of people were sort of trying to find ways to frame uh, the fantastical or frame the horrific in you know the context of commercialism and the closing of the American West. Like I think Titus brought up Robert uh, Robert E. Howard, you know, who mm-hmm. wrote um, uh, John Carter, you know, John Carter of Mars and Tarzan and that was, that was Edgar Rice oh, Burroughs. Oh, I'm sorry, Edgar Rice Burroughs, but I think around um, similar period, if I'm not too mistaken, but I think slightly before, slightly I think before that was yeah. Late but, 19th century, I think. At any level, you know, it was kind of like in that same era, though, either midway through the Gilded Age or at the end of it. And it all seemed to kind of be about the closing of the American West and, you know, seeking new adventure or what this means. And um, so I was always interested more with Lovecraft from the perspective of like, you know, early Gilded or late Gilded Age eugenics and uh, the commercialism and uh, people trying to think through what are the what is this all going to lead to? Is this going to lead to kind of mutant freaks? Are we all going to have altered DNA from these chemicals? Are you know is the West is closed? The world's been explored. What what else is left? Um, so I was kind of was more interested in that from a perspective of how do I compare it to these other subjects I'm interested in. I have I never really read that much Lovecraft on my own, I would say. But I still always found the the mythos more than anything, the Cthulhu mythos, I guess you would call it, uh, fascinating. And I've always been fascinated with the subject of cults and just how insane cults get and how influential cults can be. Um, and a big part of his writings are basically the, you know, uh, the at these sort of unseen actions of various cults and that much of the world around you is being influenced by sort of occult activity that you don't really know is going on. There's a lot of people kind of around you all the time conspiring to do something um, horrific or, or terrible and, and so forth. Uh, I hesitate to really opine on this subject because I'm really not an expert, but since Nick asked and I, as a co-host, I think I owe it to the audience to do a little bit of work uh, to be a part of it. Uh, I did actually take a look at a couple of the the novels that were recommended by my co-host a few days ago. This is honestly the first time I've ever read uh, Lovecraft. Uh, I had heard of him, of course. Uh, I didn't understand that he was the origin of a lot of these references like Thulu. Uh, But it certainly does make sense when you start thinking of the cultural uh, memes that are being put out in our current political zeitgeist where you talk about draining the swamp and the creatures from the swamp. And definitely when you're thinking of how a lot of deep politics works and the occult rituals that go into them, whether it's, the uh, Skull and Bones or modern-day Pizzagate, bizarro world, dungeon behavior that seems to occupy the time of a lot of our politicians or their handlers that want to keep dirt on them to control them. Uh, One can understand how these uh, cultural 
totems get infused in actual real-world politics. And that's where I'm always more interested, uh, being somewhat of a gearhead. I typically don't read a lot of fiction, but I certainly enjoy um, science fiction. That's one of the genres I do enjoy a lot. And there have certainly been a lot of these themes that I noticed in the two books. I read The Call of Thulu and uh, uh, Clean Air, something like that, um, that seem to find their way into horror slash science fiction movies, which I do, I do enjoy. Uh, so obviously a very influential author and I'm curious to learn more. You know, I was saying actually before the show that Adam, you would make a fantastic protagonist in a Lovecraft story. <laughs> really? <laughs> to, to a, a, a bloody end or do I survive? Uh, the protagonists no. themselves, uh, who are well, for reasons we'll get into. But uh, I think you know. I, Adam, I, think, I think I know why gonna, you you'd say that. Yeah. I think you're gonna make it, but we'll, we'll, uh, <laughs> we have to be determined. <laughs> we'll we'll get into that further. I can say for my own part that I do not remember the first time I laid eyes on the nightmare corpse city of Relea, but I'm sure that it was somewhere in distant dreams of eons long dead. Uh, the first story I remember reading was Mountains of Madness. I don't know. I was a teenager. Um, I've I've read Lovecraft ever since. I think probably one of the finest. Writers of the of finest um, American writers of the 20th century easily, and I think that Americans have always had a unique claim to the, uh, for want of a better term, the horror genre. I think that especially New Englanders, especially New Englanders, yeah, especially I think New Englanders. Uh, really, no one has ever rivaled what the Americans like. Well, America's oh. always had a fascination with the macabre. I guess you could say it's. Uh, I, you know, Poe is probably the the predecessor to Lovecraft in a lot of ways. I think in this this realm of kind of New England fascination with death and uh, the occult and you know the mysteries of um, sort of existential dread and you know that not only is death coming for you but it's probably going to be horrific. For some reason, there's like a deep New England fascination with uh, the nature of death. I don't know. I don't really know why that is. I think that um, it's a spooky well, place. Even, when you there's actually like, even uh, get off a boat. I wish I had it on hand. There's a Lovecraft quote about that where he was essentially speaking on the subject of Puritanism. He was saying something to the effect that like they created their own um, tragic tapestry of life that that and what they inserted themselves into. And I think that. There's something to be said for the fact that America is a young country, uh, that, you know, there really is not that much buried beneath the masonry, right? And so whatever would be buried, I guess metaphorically speaking, uh, would be something ancient and evil. <laughs> so on those notes, I, I would say, though, that there was, you know, we're not going to do the whole history of weird fiction, but I would, the first story we're going to talk about, um, might as well, since Adam already mentioned it, uh, is The Call of Cthulhu. And it opens, actually, with a quote from Algernon Blackwood, who was huge influence on Lovecraft. In fact, the quote belongs to a story which I know that Lovecraft uh, considered to be the finest piece of weird fiction ever written. And I think that it sums up a lot of the themes. I mean, it proceeds called Cthulhu, which I think was really his probably his first really great story. I mean, there were others there that were solid, but this was the one that really took it to another level. And this is also one that we could, I mean, we could spend the whole episode talking about, but I would like to read the opening quote because it speaks to so much that we're going to be discussing and so many themes that are present in this work. So 
Of such great powers or beings, there may be conceivably a survival, a survival of hugely remote period when consciousness was manifested, perhaps in shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity, forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods, monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. Now, with this, I think that this is one thing that, that you just you see over and over is that it's I was talking to Titus actually a little bit about this. There's very little of the, I would say, truly supernatural to be found in Lovecraft. And uh, you know, and it may it may seem like kind of a you know trite distinction in the sense that you have you know these various like multi appendage abominations you know ushering forth from the undying void seems like not exactly like your normal day, right? That so seems you know super. But on some other plane of reality, it absolutely is. Yeah, precisely, yeah. and it's well. it's uh. Very little is, I mean, the things that are unexplained are not unexplained because they can't be explained, but rather because man lacks either the knowledge or the ability to have that knowledge and also survive in their mortal coil. Uh, so, the but the idea that of memory, uh, the, Titus also mentioned the, uh, I, I think I've found myself quoting it quite a bit when it comes to the area of speculative fiction, uh, the Arthur Clarke line of uh, technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Well, uh, it follows on the same lines that in an intelligence sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from a god. Yes. So uh, I've said my piece on the opening here. Let's talk a little bit about the story. I mean, I think people are probably familiar with the story. Uh, I, we're going to spoil it. So if you haven't read Lovecraft, like Adam, uh, you should probably, should probably read it, but, uh, yeah, we go on anyways. It's the, it's the story where, you know, you have an ancient intelligence that's reaching out to men, uh, into their dreams from, you know, beyond the, beyond the shadows of time. So what do we make of this? What, uh, I'll leave it. I'll throw it to Titus first. Titus, what well, would you like I, to say? I wanted to, to quickly follow up uh, on what you said regarding America being a new country and how there are a few things sort of buried beneath the surface. And I think that's really uh, a critical point when understanding Lovecraft, uh, especially within the confines of the uh, Cthulhu mythos, right? So these are the stories that um, are, for lack of a better word, sort of, you know, supernatural, supernatural or um, uh, 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 fantastical uh, in sort of their horror. So it's not gothic, it's something else. It's it's weird fiction, right? Um, because the great thing about the, the Cthulhu mythos, and this sort of, you know, again, it's not just Cthulhu, there's a host uh, of, of deities and, and beings that are sort of beyond the audience's understanding, is that Lovecraft had to make these up. These are these are, and I think that he 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 made these up because there's sort of a a lack of sort of I guess um, deep rooted um, mythology from Americas, right? So like American mythology is is often just sort of secondhand from Europe, um, and I think what he's doing in. Um, in this story and, and, and in all the other stories that involve sort of cults praising gods who are 
uh, works of fiction from Lovecraft is he's sort of sublimating sort of the the medieval or even older classical uh, and prehistory traditions and and sort of myths and folklore from Europe. Um, and he it's it's a it's an interesting meld, um, just like the uh, weird fiction is an interesting meld between gothic horror and science fiction. The his mythos is, I think, a combination of something that's very very old and his, for a lack of a better term, scientism. His sort of um, obsession with. Uh, uh, technology and rationality and and how those things meet together uh they fight off off one another but at the same time they they mold into a into a synthesis um and i think this is this is i think the 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 great example of that i think well there there's I, i'd like to say uh, respond to a few things you said there titus yeah so, <clears throat> uh so I, I do want to say something about attempts to systematize. Uh, people talk about like Cthulhu mythos and stuff. And I, I'm somewhat uh, hostile to this approach in general. Uh, I find it to be very Reddit. Uh, mm. You know, that where they want to create a systematized lore um, when the reality is, uh, you know, unequivocally, you can read any Lovecraft story in any order, you know. Yes, reading repeated readings and reading more of it, uh, you can start to see where things flow into each other a little bit. And some do pay reference to each other. You know, that is true. But uh, I, I am largely uh, against the approach of uh, systematizing and into a coherent mythos. I know that there are people who came afterwards and basically tried to like bastardize his work and fill in the gaps to make it amenable <laughs> to people on Reddit. Um, well, it, and, it also like it, it goes against the whole purpose of the mythos itself, which is that it's which is we have only unexplainable and chaotic. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, precisely. And not only that, the names themselves, which uh, if Adam, you'll notice as you're reading for the first time, are uh, difficult to say. And there's no correct pronunciation because what they are, are approximations of something that no human tongue can adequately uh, replicate. That's the whole point. Right. Uh, they're, they're strange and foreign sounding things. And. But as to your points on classical mythology, et cetera, I, I find this to be very uh, common recurrence in Lovecraft, namely that you find a lot of uh, adjectives and nouns as well that are borrowing heavily from, from uh, particularly uh, Hellenic mythology, right? Mm -hmm. And here you have the idea of something that is even older, right? And this is why he had to invent something because as far back as he's willing to go into, you know, the, the Egyptian knights, right? I mean, there's a, in fact, there's a great quote here from it, which I, I understand had, uh, was him paraphrasing something he like had said to an antique dealer. It has some, the story had some Genesis in it, but uh, the quote is, uh, it is new indeed, for I made it last night in a dream of strange cities and dreams are older than brooding tear or the contemplative Sphinx or garden girl Babylon. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that quote was from a dream that Lovecraft had that inspired the call of Cthulhu. And I would contrast um, the more Heilig interpretation of his work with the idea that he, being such uh, a sensitive, well-formed person who was put in very stressful 
in strange situations often by fate or by chance um, kind of made him a perfect lightning rod for forces outside of the everyday world. Um, and many of his works, you know, the, the Kadath series focuses heavily on the dream world being yeah. a separate reality that kind of um, connects various realms as well as different planets. And there is that melding and that uh, kind of um, pushing and pulling of, of what is physical space, what is time, what is like emotive, dreamlike space. Um, and a lot of his short fiction like you said, falls into the category of uh, science fiction masquerading as a ghost story or as, you know, a, a horror, supernatural horror tale. But a lot of his stuff does get much more um, magical, so to speak. Mm. Like, it's it's a form of magical realism. And I would argue that what Lovecraft was doing was tapping into pre-existing whether you want to call them like egregores or gods or entities or you know massive thought forms like different sephira from kabbalah you know these just zones of particular qualities that exist as basically like uh unself-aware entities you know i i think lovecraft really was a, a kind of a sleeping prophet in the same vein Rudy. as edgar casey I have to I have to say this. What I'm about to say is is conjecture, entirely conjecture on my part. However, I will I would contend that I think that Lovecraft's greatest fear was that he was doing precisely that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Exactly. His 100%. whole life he was just completely conflicted and you touched on it a, a bit ago when you said, "Oh, well, you know, on the one hand, he's this sensitive uh, cat-loving artist that lives with his aunts and his mother in the like moldering old house that they can barely like afford. And on the other hand, he's this, um, you know, he published a, an amateur uh, astronomy uh, journal, but like by himself for like many years when he was still in high school. Um, so he wasn't just, you know, totally artistically minded. He was also like very interested in chemistry and astronomy too, and uh, geology. And you, you'll find that in a lot of his stories, you know. But I think he was just very conflicted. And like you said, yeah, he was terrified that there actually were these things beyond reality. Because he, even though he's always framed as this kind of, uh, well, now, you know, they just call him like a racist atheist, which is basically like a dark Redditor, I guess. But like, um, he he expressed uh, admiration and a, a form of like love for the Roman uh, pantheon when he was young I mean and he like very early on someone asked there's this like old story of someone asking him about Santa Claus you know like oh well you know Santa Claus isn't real and he's like oh well I know but you know there's just as much evidence for God as there is Santa Claus so what does that mean which is just a very like fedora comment but... well and, and uh, also just to on that point um, almost all of his great stories um, are inspired from from dreams, uh, just like David Lynch. Um, so there is the the there is the the weirdness of sort of the alien nature uh, that that Lovecraft is trying to scare you with, but at the same time, there's I, th I think the 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 most frightening aspect of Lovecraft's great stories lies in sort of this murky 
the murky waters of the unconscious uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, well I, I'm sure we'll have plenty to say about that because, and this, as we're talking now about Call of Cthulhu, this is the precise plot of, to the extent yes. that there is a plot of the story, is that it's the uh, the sensitive artist types from the world over who are basically experiencing uh, in their in their dreams some some ancient force basically reaching out to be born again into the world. In fact, uh, I want I think my favorite quote from it is uh, Johansson. Thank God did not quite know all, even though he saw the city and the thing. But I shall never sleep calmly again when I think of the horrors that lurk ceaselessly behind life in time and in space, and those unhallowed blasphemies from elder stars which dream beneath the sea, known and favored by a nightmare cult ready and eager to loose them on the world whenever another earthquake shall heave their monstrous stone city again into the sun and the air. <laughs> it's beautiful. And this, again, this is one of the, the themes that continues to sort of repeat through Love's, Lovecraft's work. And I think this sort of goes to, um, Hans, I think uh, your point of, of sort of American writers sort of dealing with sort of the gilded age of things is that in Lovecraft stories, the world is uh, a thread away from being completely overturned by by madness and and these godly entities that can just snap into appearance at any at any minute and just devour uh everything well, it's the fear that the world is much bigger than it appears oh yes yeah and hostile. I, I think the uh or the, indifferent or the yes, lack or of yes that's better the lack of control that the average person has was probably also i mean that's a huge part of all of the stories of his that i have read and my understanding of one of his uh, primary themes is that a primary story arcs, let's say, is that an average person uh, through one set of circumstances or another discovers that uh, the world around them is very hollow. It's controlled by forces that are far too complex for them to ever understand things they would never have considered. And much of it is uh, shocking. And I think that at the time, you know, we, we look back on it now and we're able to read books about the era and sort of decipher what was really going on. Like one of my favorite books is a book um, on the rise of the American bureaucracy, and it charts all these sort of uh, until the last like couple decades, all these sort of um, hit here to unknown developments they kind of brewed underneath the surface of the american federal government and in washington dc and how this all came to be and you know at the time no one really understood how the morgan banking network really operated we do now you can read a whole 850 page book by rob chernow about the house of morgan and you can understand all of its intricacies but at the time it was this huge beast and no one knew how it worked all they knew was that John Pierpont Morgan owned nearly every bank, owned nearly every company, controlled the fate of the country, and it was this uh, strange little man who kind of hid away in his estates that had these finely tuned interconnected webs of control. And so I think that what he was probably kind of grappling with, and if you, you know, there was a good Countercurrents article I went and 
found that I think I read years ago, but talking about his politics and he did seem to be sort of, uh, he was not necessarily an egalitarian, but he did sort of see a huge problem with these shadowy networks of control. And I think that it manifests in two ways in, uh, in his work. And one, it's the sort of uh, paranormal, uh, strange gods that are too complicated for you to even grasp. It would take too long and it would be too difficult. Or it's a cult of some kind, and it's a little bit easier to grasp, but it's too horrifying that there would be living people engaging in this stuff, and so you sort of back away before you know you really try to understand it. So I, I get the I get the sense that a lot of his work is de- you know from that perspective is trying to just deal with how grotesquely complicated the life must have seemed, especially if you were raised poor in New England. If you come from that, you know, that Johnny Appleseed background where you just live on your farm or you just live in your little uh, house above your shop and you just try and make a living. He was what you would call, and I think that some of our listeners might relate to, he was probably what you would call a downwardly mobile. Um, You know, he came from a higher stock, but uh, it seemed like with each successive generation, uh, they're worse off. Yeah, he was pretty, uh, the family was affluent when he was born, but his uh, father went insane. Um, You know, there's all these different speculations on what actually happened and what led to it. And the story that he told is one thing versus what people later have sort of speculated about, like comparing uh, symptoms and whatnot. But then it was Lovecraft, his mother, and like two aunts that were being taken care of by his grandfather. And then when he died, everything just, you know, completely fell apart. Now, I wanted to address something that both of you uh, brought to my mind, and that's that in Lovecraft, you see this sort of, uh, not so much a paradox, but it's uh, turning on its head the sort of the classical approach to knowledge, right? Knowledge should uh, empower uh, it, it, the the man who pursues knowledge and he achieves knowledge uh, should be achieving power as well. But the inversion of that, we find that what happens is that when man achieves knowledge, he eventually comes to reckon with his insignificance in the face of either a malevolent or indifferent cosmos. Well, uh, isn't that the reference obliquely in the opening quote to Call of Cthulhu, where the protagonist is talking about one of the most merciful things about reality is that the human mind is incapable of correlating all of its disparate elements, because if it was able to, then we would just go insane. Precisely. Yeah, it's actually a common common (laughs) thing where the characters will basically desire that they hadn't seen what they had seen or something to that effect. Yeah. In any of his work, does, does at least one of the characters ever really uh, in totality or at least get a glimpse of how the world really works or how the universe really works? Yes. Uh, or and or that is it sort of like piecemeal? Because the way I always understood it, that like how people think of the Cthulhu mythos or whatever you want to call it actually wasn't really established until after uh, Lovecraft died. And it's more of like, every you know, people went through all of his work and sort of pieced it together. 
Is, is that accurate or, or is there like an actual point where someone really grasps what's what's going on here? Like how is the, the world really works? Yeah, that that I think was largely done after the fact. I said in the opening a bit about that was to there there is plenty of overlap and relationship between his stories, but the attempt to systematize it, I think, was born of a of a of a severely Reddit type impulse. All right, I we can't stay for too long uh, on the first story, but there is one subject I'd like to discuss, which is the nature of the Cthulhu cult. Uh, I would describe it, uh, I don't believe he uses the adjective here, but I would describe it as uh, Dionysian. What, from the Roman god? Dionysus? Yes. The cult itself, not I'm not necessarily saying the being, but the cult itself is in pursuit of a sort of a Dionysian immortality. Uh, I'm afraid I don't have the quote here, but there's one that really sums up uh, what they seek is basically, you know, uh, new frontiers of pleasure. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, I wanted to ask, do you guys not see an inherent contradiction in his atheism and his seemingly believing in these somewhat uh i would call them supernatural i'm not quite sure what to call them this is the perfect question because this is my point adam for you earlier this is why you would make a perfectly uh suitable lovecraft protagonist (laughs) thanks Uh, i think (laughs) so the characters are uh pretty much without exception i mean occasionally you have like the odd like police detective or what have you i mean at which is a model of someone capable of using deductive reasoning. So in any case, uh, the characters were always possessed with a scientific uh, materialistic outlook. And uh, sometimes I guess they're, I, I mean, usually you, he uses a lot of like layers of narration in call of Cthulhu. For example, you have several different firsthand accounts that take place throughout the world. Uh, so some of the characters whose firsthand account is being delivered by the narrator. Sometimes they may be themselves more occupied with uh, things like the occult. But this actually brings to mind, uh, I think, an irrelevant question as to Lovecraft's relationship with the occult. Now, when you start talking about, keep in mind that around this time, there there is a clear influence of things like the uh, theosophy, uh, you have a lot of ideas, and you even have the language showing up, uh, such as things like uh, Lemuria and Atlantis. Though Atlantis has been talked about for a very long time, uh, but it's uh, the idea that perhaps recorded history uh, does not do justice to civilizations that had once existed in the past. But for as to the question of the occult, uh, there is a very specific understanding of the occult in in the West that is not about black magic per se it's not about witchcraft it's actually just about the pursuit uh, pursuit of knowledge and now this is a rabbit hole i'm sure maybe some people anyone wants to go down but the the fact of the matter is that uh, certain intellectual pursuits had to be for a while hidden from uh, certain authorities who uh, wanted uh, nothing to do with you know this type of knowledge right uh there is, 
not exactly a contradiction between being a man possessed of uh, scientific faculties and having an interest in the occult. Rudy, would you like to comment on that? Uh, sure. Yeah, I think um, there's definitely been a couple of different currents of, you know, whether you want to call it alternative religions or uh, paganism uh, um, or just, you know, magic, you know, that's been around for a while and was uh, coming to a head or had been coming to a head during the whole Victorian era because, you know, you had the Golden Dawn and then you had the whole Crowley thing and then you had all of these people talking about Tarot and Kabbalah and um, ancient Sumerian deities. And then before that, you had um, Renaissance astrology being directly tied with the Catholic Church. And one of the most well-known uh, Renaissance astrologers was himself a Catholic priest, uh, Marsilio Ficino. And then one of the greatest works of astrological magic ever written was by a man named William Lilly, and it's literally just called Christian Astrology. And the whole point of it was that it, it, it wasn't trying to refute free will and man's place in the cosmos, but rather it was trying to combine all of the different things that people were learning uh, after the Enlightenment and after the world, you know, we, we were tracking and... Um, figuring out sort of the borders of our own reality. And as we did so, we kind of had to like, you know, it was so quick. People were just like throwing the uh, train tracks down in front of us as the train is barreling ahead. So people were trying to combine all of these things and everything was just reaching this fevered pitch. And you had all of these ancient concepts conflicting with all of these modern ones. And, you know, everyone was trying to get rid of huge chunks of knowledge and replace it with like brand new theories. And there was all of this constant mental and emotional turmoil in the mind of the West, you know, and magic really channeled all of these vital forces uh, in, in its various forms, whether you're talking about like Christian mysticism or, you know, uh, ritual magic, it, it channels these things because, you know, nothing is ever separated from the whole really like it it can be to be observed but in actuality it's always in a in flux it's it's a dynamic totality and i think uh, to adam's point with the the overt contradiction of that in lovecraft's work um i think he was so steeped in that in and of himself that he didn't really have to go like like he had an innate understanding of what magic was so he just basically did the like 1920 equivalent of reading a bunch of Wikipedia articles and then was like, okay, how, like, I don't really see myself donning robes and joining the esoteric order of Dagon. So how can I make, how can I test the reality of this stuff with myself? And so he wrote stories and he, you know, wrote a hundred thousand letters over the course of his life, interacting with all of these like-minded people that he met through writing his stories, you know, um, which was basically like his version of like a chat room back then. I mean, and these guys talked about like everything with one another and they, and that was the pantheon being the pantheon of Cthulhu mythos deities. Um, the fact that it was not, you know, nailed down with like, Oh, Cthulhu represents this and Nyarlathotep represents this and Sathagua represents this. Like 
it was purposefully done because they all shared elements with one another. So you had Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft and Derleth all like coming up with deities and trading them back and forth. And so you'll have references to Cthulhu and Smith's work and you'll have references to Samaria and Lovecraft's work and on and on and on. So I, I don't know if that answered the question. But. I, I would add as well that on this point, because I think this opens, I'm, I'm going to keep mentioning Reddit, I think, throughout the show because it, in a certain sense, like we'll get into how they've attempted to appropriate Lovecraft, but I will first say that there is a big difference. Uh, and this gets a little bit down the rabbit hole, but there's a big difference between suspension or breaking of laws of, you know, cosmic laws, laws of the material world, laws of the universe, right? There's a big difference between breaking those and discovering that they are different than you had thought them to be. Right. Well, so it's like, and I just, when you mentioned Reddit before, I thought this was really funny. Like Lovecraft is basically the opposite of the Harry Potter world because in the Harry Potter world, you're like a downtrodden precocious youth who, you know, suddenly finds out that you're a wizard and you have all these magical powers and you can go to a secret magical school. And then in Lovecraft world, you're just like a normal guy. And then you find out that weird, like, uh, Puerto Rican immigrants are sacrificing babies to like devils underneath the like rickety tenement beside your house. This, this, this was actually the, the point that I was going to make um, for, for Adam, just in, in sort of understanding at least the, that contradiction in terms of Lovecraft's narration. It's very rare for a Lovecraft protagonist to be uh, inured and, and sort of uh, of sort of the, um, occult and and mythological sort of realm at the beginning. Um, they're almost always uh, beginning the story from a very secular lens, and through that secular lens, it opens up this implausibility and 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 impossibility of of sort of uh, the magical real, right? The um, the uh, one of the main protagonists uh, of Call Cthulhu is a, a professor of, of languages. The, uh, the other is a cop. The protagonist in Shadow Over Innsmouth uh, begins the journey just by he's, he's, he's looking, he's trying to find um, uh, like his genealogy. Like it's, it's not even really that academic. He's just trying to find out where he's from. Um, so a lot of, of the protagonists enter sort of the, the Lovecraftian sort of world through a, a very sort of scientific and rationalist lens. And it's through the, 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 the story that that lens is, I wouldn't say broken. It, it's shines onto yes. and, uh, uh, something that is greater and, and beyond normal capacity to, of, to, of understanding. Precisely. And the thing we have to remember is that science and it's put in its proper place. Science is a methodology. Yes. It is not a dogmatic worldview, contra yes. Reddit. And the whole point is if you're properly pursuing science in the Aryan manner, mind you, I've recently uh, been rereading Rosenberg, uh, in fact, the titular uh, uh, book that we've taken our show name from. Uh, and Rosenberg would, Lovecraft fits in really well into, into how Rosenberg would characterize the Aryan spiritual struggle. And namely, it's a spiritual struggle of, essentially the freedom of conscious, the freedom of the mind to pursue an understanding of things around it against the dogmatic witchcraft 
of the Near East. And you see this on display in a major way in some of the stories yes. we'll, we'll be approaching. But that's the, the twist, though, with Lovecraft is that it, it takes it a step further where it's, you know, you have these these uh, racial mongoloids and, you know, coming to infest your quaint New England town and they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're bringing ancient spiritual evils. And it turns out, whoa, the demon they're summoning is real. Yeah. What do uh, but it takes a certain courage, it, and it's a very, there's a very, you know, it's a deeply Aryan, I know John uh, Jonathan Bowden referred to him as an Aryan mystic, and there, there's a lot of truth to this, because what he is putting forward, people are going to try to criticize him for his atheism or something, and, you know, try to you know, put the fedora on him or something, and that's not accurate, because what he's what he's really doing is he's he's following this through to its end. He was also a, a big fan of Jung as well. Uh, and and very much a believer in sort of the collective unconscious and the like, which again it bleeds through all of his works. But at the same time, uh, it's it's he isn't a, a fedora tipper. No, uh, and he's put he's yeah, and what he's doing is the collective. He's putting the shadow. He, he's yes, putting the mirror to what was really the predominant thinking of the age yeah. in in the English speaking world. I mean, this these scientific rationalism was the was the idea that was in vogue. Yeah. And you know, well, and one of Go ahead, one, of, yeah. one of the first stories that he ever got published, I think, was when he was a, a teen, and it was about uh, Providence, you know, his hometown, it, like a thousand years in the future, and it had just been, the, the English stock had been completely outbred by all of these uh, migrants. Like, that's literally one of his first stories, so it's just like, hmm, I'm kind of starting you, to feel, you know, and then later he moved to New York, and that completely just almost drove him insane. We, we might as well just attack it now. Let's let's talk about the Reddit takes on Lovecraft. So the okay. So the reality is these people. Uh, I there's different explanations maybe for why they're interested. In it. I think my explanation is just going to be Lovecraft has seeped into the commercial world uh, so thoroughly that you know it's you find it in in film and in uh, video games, etc. You can buy your Cthulhu plushie at uh, Hot Topic. Yeah. It's yeah. it's ubiquitous in pop culture at this point. So they there's an element where they 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 want to. I guess they want Lovecraft without Lovecraft, right? <laughs> and the funny aspect of it is they'll make this they'll make this uh, like a you know the ones who are you know less uh, less gay, I guess, uh, will try to make this like oh well he's a man of his time, you know, and we don't endorse racism, but whatever, blah blah blah. No. Lovecraft's racialism was ahead of its time. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I mean, like uh, ahead of its time, and and what, and more importantly, uh, integral to the magic of his storytelling. You can't have uh, a Lovecraftian, a, a, a weird fiction, um, cosmic horror short story, a good one without it being racist. You just can't. Yeah, I mean, because you have to have the concept of the cosmos in order to feel horror. Yeah, and there has to, there has to be a, you a have to be white of, to do of, that. So. of othering and alienation, and what's the purest form of othering or alienation than racism? <laughs> well, there has to be lesser beings, and there has to be degradation, right? Yes. And, and corruption. Like a big part of his stories and a lot of the, again, a lot of the paranormal constructs, I guess, or beings that 
he'll come across and it feels like living corruption or like yes. uh, anthropomorphic corruption or mold or just sort of these aimless creatures of um, tentacles and, and flesh and, and speech that don't make a lot of sense. There's one creature, I can't remember the name, is literally, or some god, that's literally made of living sound, and it's some kind of horrific, endless noise. And you can imagine, oh, well, he's stuck living in New York, and he's hearing the chattering <laughs> of the, the absolute deluge from the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Sicily and, and just, you know, all, half of the Pale of Settlement pouring out into New York City, screeching about whatever all day. And it probably just overwhelmed his senses. So yeah. I think that you can't be, you can't appreciate the horrific reality of life if you're not a, at least a little willing to see certain realities in real life. And you're not, you're not capable of um, seeing corruption or something being corrupted if you don't have strong opinions about anything. Yes. You know, I would say that this is part of the reason why the horror genre is effectively dead in that it can't really come up with anything other than new, other than uh, slashers, I guess, which is sort of aimless killing. It's pointless just killing. Oh, we could scare right. the shit out of these people, but they won't let us. Right. And I mean, you have to you have to see that when you basically say that certain thought patterns are off limits. Obviously, that leads to uh, your ability to see horror or something being horrific as limited. And if you don't have a disgust factor in place, then certain things just won't uh, won't disgust you and, you and you won't want to write about them and you won't want to make them strange and you won't want to use colorful adverbs and adjectives to describe it, to, you know, the, which is what Lovecraft is known for more more than anything is 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 the loquaciousness not just the the weirdness and if you're not if you can't be disgusted by something or be tuned out by something then of course you're not going to be creative about it why would you be creative about something if you don't care or as as this is the 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 dark sort of twin of fantasy uh, as the two most right-wing and right-thinking genres uh, ever conceived because both are, um, lar- you know, the, the ur of horror and the ur of fantasy is mythology, um, you know. My, I, there, there is I something I did want to, well, something quickly I want to bring up uh, that I, and I don't know if, uh, if you guys have noticed this before, but there is an element of most Lovecraftian uh, creatures or, I guess, uh, his core sort of um, scare factor. And it's not just sort of anthropomorphic corruption or living mold or something like that. There's a lot of sea monsters. A lot of it seems to revolve around the sea. And it seems to revolve around uh, sort of the deep, dark, depths of the ocean and in some way or another you know the ocean is uh, a place to him of wildly disgusting lesser creatures and uh greater ones or greater ones but there's plenty of lesser ones and i think that 
if you are able to be, I guess, offensive, racist, whatever you want to call it, you're also able to see the ocean for what it is, which is uh, both beautiful but haunting in the fact that it is filled with absolutely nothing but disgusting, strange abominations. I heard a great theory uh, the other day from someone that uh, the ocean, many of these ocean creatures that kind of live at the bottom and uh, that we find, we have these pictures of, and they're sort of incomprehensible in how strange they are. Um, these might even be some of the abominations that were cast out of heaven. And this might might be sort of the gateway to hell in a lot of ways, which is what Lovecraft seems to imply. Because nothing quite nothing on land quite represents the kind of strangeness you'll find in the ocean. I don't know if you guys had noticed that, but there seems to be something in him that recognizes lesser creatures. And whether it's in New York City or it's in the depths of the ocean, if you're able to see something as being lesser, then you can write about it in a way that's terrifying because something you that you who? think is lesser can actually scare the shit out of you. So well, and James Cameron would agree with this. I mean, uh, you see him put that to work and all, I mean, he was, cause he was a diver, right? Uh, and there is a reason that, Oh, there, there's some epic, uh, nonfiction movies he's put out. He actually visited the, uh, the sunken, uh, German battleship, uh, the Bismarck. Uh, and it's just got a giant swastika on the bow and it's, <laughs> Like he's going to the bottom, the Marianas Trench. Yeah, and what, like, what, uh, what portals to what unknown worlds uh, can be found there? Uh, there's a reason that the what we know of the form of, uh, you know, the entity uh, Cthulhu is described as at least uh, being somewhat like an octopus, a cephalopod. You know, because these are so my my definition of horror, to the extent to it can sum it up, is. I'll give you eight words, and they come partly from Lovecraft. And I would I would describe horror uh, as the thing that should not be, but is. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about a lot of these creatures is they're forms that actually exist in the world. And what you find in uh, in other uh, stories, such as uh, we might as well, we're, I guess we're going to be bouncing back and forth between stories at this point. But we find uh, in the I guess what you would call racial horror. Is these are these are forms, you know. Your New England town uh, is now filled with a bunch of mongoloids, you know. And uh, th- comparing comparing to ancient beings that maybe possessed knowledge of things beyond the stars, or these debased, you know, humanoid forms, ooga boogaing and chanting and murdering and fucking. I mean, w- what really is more horrifying? And when you say it's the thing that should not be, as in they should not be here. They should be back in their in the dark continent, ooga booging from the trees, but they're here, so they're the thing that should not be, but are. They in fact are here, and you have to look at them, and you have to reckon with the, the horror of this possibility, and it, this is what's become truly, truly frightening. Oh, and furthermore, uh, to what Hans was saying, with that definition, uh, it posits that things should be a certain way, other than that, right? Yes. When you say that. Uh, it should not be. Well, you're you're positing that things should be ordered in a hierarchical, civilized way. Well, that's so the other posit- interesting part of ahead, Lovecraft we- is, but as far as his like um, otherworldly hierarchy goes, there's no positive counterbalance. It's no. all negative entities, and the only kind of positive thing is 
like a normal guy who's like, well, I guess I'll read the Necronomicon. Gosh darn it, because this thing is this invisible house-sized tentacle beast is scaring these peasants. So, and uh, I mean that's just very funny, and I'd, I'd never really thought about that until I said it out loud. That there's no you know archangels that you can call on to protect you. It's just you well, using the same evil power. Hypnos, I think hypnos. Forces. I think hypnos is a. a I wouldn't say um, he's certainly not a malevolent uh, deity. Uh, I think hypnosis is, is neutral to pro-human. Well, the closest to um, pseudo-benevolent actually would be found in uh, Shadow Out of Time. But we'll, uh, I guess, get to that later. I'm not sure we're going to make it properly through this list of 10. Yeah. I don't mind how this is going, but um, uh, I, I suppose, let me say my closing thoughts on Call of Cthulhu uh, upon rereading re it, what I found to be interesting is that even this perverse cult is itself in the, in the sense that it takes form amongst the colored world and amongst these, you know, uh, various natives and Ooga Booga people. Uh, it is itself bastardized, which I found to be interesting when you think about it. Like, they, they don't really have any true knowledge like the, the Aryan man would, of what it is that is the object of their worship. It's just something, it's like the um, the Wiwas Kangs who are existing in the pyramids ha having no idea, you know, what these meant, how they got there or anything, but they live in the shadow of it, and you have some kind of cult that was passed down, but these people don't really understand it. I thought that was an interesting aside. I, I made the point, Rudy disagreed with me, but I think it's interesting, I'm going to make it here, Um I found it interesting that because there's a line in it, uh, something to the effect of, uh, you know, what others had tried to do on purpose, like these men did on accident. And that's that when the when the beast, when the entity is finally awakened into the world, it's done by a, a Nordic sailor. Yes, a Norwegian. Yes. And I, I think that we've either implied it or people who are familiar understand that H.P. Lovecraft was, of course, a Nordicist. Yes. Albeit, yes, he had some, you know, in later years, maybe he repudiated some of the things he said. But, I mean, shit, man, like, uh, it's a good quote. He, and, the, and the more I study the question, the more firmly I'm convinced that the one supreme race is the Teuton. Observe the condition of the British Isles. English were wholly Teutonic and therefore dominant. The Southern Scotch and Eastern Irish were also of the blood. They certainly uh, surpassed their fellows to the north and west. The Welsh who have no Teutonic blood or of little account, had it not been for the Teutonic infusion at the beginning of the Dark Ages, Southern Europe would have been lost. Who were these early French kings and heroes that founded French civilization? Teutons, to a man. Who were the Normans? Teutons of the North. It is pitiful to me to hear the apostles of equity pipe out that other races can equal this foremost of all, the successor to the Roman race in power and virility. Well, this was a commonly held view at the time, and we've talked about this before, but I think there was a, there was sort of a backlash to the to the immigration. And uh, I think that quite a few people who even had sitting presidents talk about the the importance of the the Nordic stock. You know, we had Calvin Coolidge. and you know, I he this was not out of. I don't know, out of character for someone of his ilk at the time. And for people to now look back on him and say, oh, what a horrible person, you know, um, 
<laughs> F. Scott then, Fitzgerald had the same opinions at the same time. Yes, like literally. Fitzgerald was a, uh, a fan you of know, we did a We did a show on eugenics uh, a while back, and we looked at Richard Lynn's book, just called Eugenics. And I quoted from it heavily, and he went into the history of this period, and literally all of American high society uh, was in some way or another associated with this scene and was actively campaigning for it. You know, it it, it inspired immigration restrictionism, and it inspired uh, all kinds of cultural advents. Uh, it even was kind of inspired the conservationist movement. And so... For Lovecraft to espouse that was not even something, I mean, it was, he did it in a very eloquent way, but it wasn't even wholly unique at the time. So, you know, it is strange that he gets so much criticism now and we have to browbeat the poor dead man um, for his supposed sin. Um, When, you know, this was the belief held by most people, certainly of his class. The difference is you don't have these these people who are trying to separate, you know, Lothrop Stoddard from his racialism. Right. Right. So on that note, uh, my second choice uh, for my top five, I don't know, again, I don't know how far we're going to get into the 10, but I want to talk about Hort Red Hook, because what is Hort Red Hook other than basically the story of a heroic proto ice uh, age trying to physically remove swarthy mongoloid immigrants who are kidnapping Aryan children for sinister purposes. I mean, that's that's the plot. And then you have this, like, Kipling-esque uh, ending. But, uh, I mean, you got some juicy ones like this. He had not read in vain such trees as Miss Murray's Witch Cult in Western Europe, which, as an aside, was hugely influential, uh, as was uh, uh, Fraser. Uh, anyways. And uh, on Lovecraft, I mean to say. And knew that up to recent years, there had certainly survived among peasants and furtive folk. There's his favorite word. Uh, furtive folk, a frightful and clown assemblies and orgies descended from dark religions antedating the Aryan world and appearing in popular legends as black masses and witches' sabbaths. That these hellish, vest- hellish vestiges of the old uh, Turian Asiatic magic and fertility cults were even now wholly dead he could not for a moment suppose and he frequently wondered how much older and how much blacker that the very worst of the muttered tales of some of them might really be thoughts on horror i uh well i just i just love um that this story is like unconsciously um like uh, very uh, very on the surface level it's 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 about you know more or less a, a race war but uh, on another level, it's uh, a spiritual race war because the protagonist uh, who's fighting this Kurdish cult um, is. Uh, uh, I, I have this. I have this line. Uh, the, the detective uh, Thomas Malone, um, who is said to have the Celts' far vision of weird and hidden things, but the logician's quick eye for the outwardly unconvincing, uh, in youth. He had felt the hidden beauty and ecstasy of things, and he had been a poet. But poverty and sorrow and exile has turned his gaze in darker directions. Um, so, it, it, this is this is very much uh, not just on a uh, uh, demographic or, or, or racial level uh, about good versus evil, but there's a, a psychic 
uh, element to it as well. Yeah, I mean, what 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 spiritual evils are these people bringing? This is not something that's really debated today in America. No, you know, you have a lot of talk about crime and uh, you know welfare dependency, et cetera. But you know, what are, what if they're bringing some of their black gods from the Levant? Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, wh- I, I want to know where the politicians stand on the Moloch issue. You know? <laughs> so, you know. It, I, I guess if we did have like a, something like ICE, but instead it was uh, something closer to an initiatory occult society you know, that was capable and given carte blanche to perform extrajudicial uh, executions on the frontier. <laughs> if only. If only. <laughs> it's a pretty cool idea. It's, yeah. yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I, I love one one thing that I found when I was revisiting the story, I just had to put this. This is one, you know, I, I think it's hilarious. Uh, it's okay, maybe his greatest story, but it's got a lot of the good elements, and it pisses all the right people off. This is yeah. one that they would not exist. Yes, there's a couple, but but this is one of those that just because you have the that association between physical and spiritual evil that the racial outsider is also bringing something, you know, of a metaphysical evil. In fact, one of the funniest lines of it is uh, towards the end you get, uh, who are we to combat poisons older than history and mankind? Apes danced in Asia to those horrors, and the cancer lurks secure and spreading where furtiveness hides in rows of decaying brick. It's also worth noting um, that the sort of main antagonist of this story is a fellow Aryan uh, who has turned to the dark side and who has uh, become a a racial and uh, theological uh, Is he a neoliberal? No. He's Dutch, so pretty close. (laughs) I got that's something that hadn't occurred to me when I had first read it but rereading it, I got some serious Kipling vibes from that. I want to make a, a general point, if I may, uh, real quick. Uh, we were talking about how uh, Lovecraft, uh, in all his uh, race realist observations and preferences, was a a man of of, of sin in the eyes of the modern world. Um, those views are still held in many countries, by the way. Uh, there is a group in Nigeria called Boko Haram, which means, you know, West is Western teaching is forbidden. Uh, most East Asian countries operate on a principle of preferring their people above anybody else. Uh, if you go to Japan, Korea is probably even more extreme. China, they all don't like outsiders, especially those with darker skin. This is not an unusual view. What is unusual is this empire that we live in that tries to lie to all the peasants that they're all the same so that they basically buy the same junk from Walmart and and Amazon. What is normal is preferring your own people. And that has been the the great sin of the American empire for the past hundred years. But he, like many people today around the world, are normal, actually. Well, America is the vehicle by which Yog Slogoth enters the world. Uh, not coincidentally, uh, Adam, uh, Japan has, uh, like over the past few um, years, uh, 
they've been having uh, translations of uh, uh, Lovecraft uh, into Japanese, and uh, he's developed uh, quite a cult following over there as well, with no uh, Reddit tier exasperations onto his uh, racial politics. The Jew fears the samurai. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, they already had tentacle porn. It's just like one step to the side. It's like, ah. <laughs> Oh, we understand. Yes, I see. Yes, yes, Cthulhu. Yes, very good. That's all it is, nah. <laughs> Dreams of the Fisherman Wife, right? <laughs> oh, goodness. Am I coming through all right? <clears throat> yeah, you're coming through great. Yeah, you're good. Okay, cool. What's your next uh, so, book, Nick? Well, I, I think I said most of what I'd like to say about Horror Red Hook. So I'd like to turn it over to Rudy to talk about um, the great story of Nigger Man. <laughs> sure, That's we can do that. an actual title? <laughs> no, no, no Nigger uh... Man is his, is his most much beloved friend and companion. He, he put him into cat, a story. And yeah. he wrote him into one story, uh, at least one, only one that I'm aware of, and that's uh, Rats in the Walls, which is a, uh, which is a fine story. Uh, very much uh, 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 you, oh, go ahead, would you like go to ahead. talk about nigger man i would love to nick thanks um when i saw the list that you guys made i realized immediately that you didn't include the story that contains the penultimate lovecraft meme which is as you mentioned his cat nigger man and in the story obviously it's just a throwaway reference that's not really even you know worth mentioning like i don't think people of his age would have even snickered about it i been like yeah of course it's a black cat makes sense but you know that became like a whole with, with this whole lovecraft country thing and all of the reddit kind of like trying to retcon lovecraft and you know take and get rid of things it became emblematic of that that there was something like literally just a throwaway reference like that's almost more offensive to people like throw away casual racism because it's not even important enough to warrant because back to red hook for a minute titus mentioned this there was some i guess it's a black person they wrote a whole book from the point of view of one of the random black helpers of the the antagonist in the horror at red hook just to try to like counteract the like horrible bigotry of this story and yeah, that's just the links that these people will go to instead of just ignoring it. But anyway, Rats in the Walls is a story that features a lot of Lovecraft's uh, main themes that he would sort of expand upon and reuse over and over and over. Um, uh, it features a man of dubious ancestry, but who, uh, you know, to all appearances seems like, uh, you know, normal average Aryan. he's returning to uh an old family i think it's literally a castle isn't it it's not it's like a priory um so it's this old stone building and uh there's you know a, a mysterious event surrounds it uh one of his ancestors killed a bunch of other ones and then was treated really lightly by the local law and you know left as a hero and yeah, i think it's set around the end of the civil war the story and so it's this guy returning to his ancestral home and trying to find out, uh, you know, what actually occurred. And the entire time he hears these rats clawing behind the stone walls and he, he can't 
figure out if it's just him going crazy or if there are actually tons and tons of rats. And then, of course, you know, he brings some of his other uh, gentleman scholar <laughs> investigators into the situation and they find uh, this horrible, dreadful, abominable secret that lies beneath the uh, priory. Something that that had to this the setting had to be moved to old Europe. Yes, for the reasons that we mentioned earlier, thing, uh, antedating the Roman world to be found beneath a New England uh, townhome. Right. Yeah. Um. Because basically, I guess I'll just say what happened. So they they find uh, a secret chamber that has uh, effectively like a uh, sacrificial altar on it. Um, the main character and his friend, well, actually he gets like seven other, it's sort of like a Dracula situation going on where you have all these like gentlemen scholars going down into this um, benighted chamber. And it's an entire underground grotto that features architecture from basically every stage of Western development. So Lovecraft goes out of his way to... Um, I actually have a quote here. It's it's when, when the main character first sees the entire underground, like, human corral grotto. Uh, and it goes, God, those carrion black pits of sawed, picked bones and opened skulls, those nightmare chasms choked with the pithecanthropoid, Celtic, Roman, and English bones of countless unhallowed centuries. Some of them were full, and none can say how deep they had once been. Others were still bottomless to our searchlights and peopled by unnameable fancies. And I felt that that um, paragraph summed up the the gestalt of the entire story pretty well. Um, I had I had one that I liked as well. Uh, so what I thought of the hapless rat that stumbled into such traps admits the blackness of their quests in this grisly tartar. And there again is another use of... Uh, of the allusion to actually not uncommon uh, to see Tartarus show up in a lot of his works. Stygian as well. It's another one that you see a lot. It, well, I I, th I think it was this story that he mentioned the um, Addis and Sibylle and Hecate often, mm -hmm. right? Yep. I mean, he yep. he does that a while, but this one I think was the most pregnant with all those references. Um, Speaking and I remember, of what, oh, go ahead, Rudy. Oh, I was just going to say he goes out of his way. Lovecraft often goes out of his way to describe architecture in great detail and to link the architecture with the various types of humans who are connected to it. Um, and in this story, he talks about the, the the Roman architecture being true Roman, and I think he he. Uh, offsets it by referencing like Saxton bumblings uh, in an attempt to counterfeit the Roman style. But the, the, the chamber, he uses a reference to Roman architecture as a way of saying this chamber is ancient, basically. It's not just something within our own racial memory. It's something beyond. Yeah, in fact, well, as for beyond its symbols, uh, he says, we remember that one pattern, a sort of raid was held by students to imply a non-Roman origin. 
suggesting that these altars had been merely adopted by the Roman priests from some older and perhaps aboriginal temple on the same site. One of these blocks was were some brown stains which made me wonder. The largest in the center of the room had certain features on the upper surface which indicated its connection with fire, probably burnt offerings. What means, Raid Sun? What means? What indeed? I think that that's interesting that Lovecraft always has his, basically his non-white characters as being um, unsuspecting uh, super spreaders of this cosmic horror germ. Like, if left to their own devices, they could at any point in time basically create a coven and start, like, chanting and summon ghouls from the underdeeps, you know? Well, the, the colored world is easiest to peel. That's why I think it's important to identify in the, with Cthulhu that it is it is a, a Dionysian cult in a certain sense because it's the colored world that can maintain this by appeal to their furtive passions, right? Uh, their bestial and animal nature allows for uh, the these ancient beings to seep in that way, whereas it's the it's the Aryan characters who are driven to the heights of it by a desire for knowledge and the pursuit of it, which of course leads to madness. <laughs> But what's interesting, though, because all of the, the like, advanced antagonists, like the one in Charles Dexter Ward and um, in Red Hook, they, they avoid madness, but it's they're ultimately undone by their reliance on lesser people. Yes, yes, that's a very good point. I, madness is not certain here. Again, I think Adam's going to make it. But I had one more quote I wanted to ask about just, just kind of, like, I couldn't help but not because I know that you're a you're a cat. So I'd like you to say a few words for uh, for Nigger Man here. Where there came a sound from that inky, boundless, further distance that I and I saw my old black cat dart past me like a winged Egyptian god, straight into the illimitable gulf of the unknown. So why does he use Egyptian? Why is the why does Nigger Man appear in the visage of an Egyptian god? Because the, the Egyptians were black. Some, but I'd like to hear you answer, Rudy. Yeah. Yeah, the Egyptians were black. That's why. <laughs> um, well, you know, in like traditionally and especially in Lovecraft, he views cats as being uh, these. They, well, actually, you know, they are the most positive, like, spiritual force in the Lovecraft world. Because uh, especially in Kadath, like, literally cats come and save the protagonist from yeah. a certain doom. And in uh, Rats in the Walls, when the the main character is found eating the body of one of his compatriots, his cat isn't there, like, eating the corpse along with him. The cat is, like, clawing at his throat, trying to, like, get him to stop because he knows that he's fallen to the, uh, the genetic taint that has been, you know, the taint of cannibalism that has been lying in, in wait in his psyche this whole time. And in Lovecraft, cats are always positive and they're always... Uh, protectors of humanity and they're aware of the multiple realms of existence uh there were because we're talking about cats and it got me thinking about this uh there are a number of very good uh lovecraft adaptations or rather there are a number of very good films that were very much inspired by lovecraft uh, there's not necessarily a lot of very good straight adaptations uh 
Reanimator is a fun movie, and the recent Richard Stanley film, Color Out of Space, is a very good adaptation. It just um, you needed to recast a certain character in that uh, correctly. But that aside, one film I talk about, and I go back and forth with people on this, is the Alien film. Uh, I think that the Alien film wears a lot of its Lovecraftian inspirations on its sleeve in a way that people don't quite give it credit for because there are certain aspects of the movie that definitely take a departure uh, from the way that Lovecraft stories are told and paced. But at the very least, the first like 45 minutes or so, you have some really obvious Lovecraft material. Uh, first of all, they find a derelict. That's exactly as it happens in, in Call of Cthulhu. Uh, second, when they discover this, they find eventually they find this this impossible or rather this strange architecture that is suggestive of forms that are not quite human. Um, that I don't think I can't think, and you have obviously H.R. Geiger to thank for that, but I can't think of any other film that has done that as well. And that that really that that's an element of Lovecraft, as Rudy mentioned, that is present in a lot of work. And the other being that kind of attached to that is that you have the implications of the downfall of a civilization far more advanced than your own. Uh, but now I just wanted to throw those out there, but the, the thing that got me thinking about it is I think that the cat in that film is a nod to H.P. Lovecraft. Big time. I, I think huh. the chest bursting scene is also a nod to uh, Dreams of the Witch House. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the presence of the cat, the cat was not black. Uh, it was it was more of a Garfield cat, uh, but that's mm -hmm. okay. That's okay. But I, I believe the presence of that cat in that film is is very much a, a Lovecraft hat tip. Yeah, I'd never thought of that before, but I think I uh, agree wholeheartedly. Did did Scott write the screenplay? Or... No, Dan no, O'Bannon did. No, no, no. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't think yeah. Scott's ever written a screenplay. No, yeah, and that's he... why he's such a mixed bag as a filmmaker. Yes. Well, he actually, one thing he did do, though, was his own really beautiful set of, uh, like, illustrated storyboards for Alien. Uh, he's, like, yeah. a really great, like, comic-tier illustrator. Yeah, he's a great, yeah, you're right. Would we the, say that yeah. uh, on this subject, then, that Prometheus, the film, is a bad attempt at yes. space Lovecraftianism, well, like a very yes. bad attempt Actually, at too, yeah. uh, the book that you mentioned uh, reading, uh, Hans, it's a bad adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness. Yes, it's a terrible adaptation of of At the Mountain. Yeah, Mountain I got the is... I got the feeling, like when they walk in, in that one scene where like they walk in and there's the giant bald head. I was like, okay, what is this like a? I mean, it's never explained what that is, but on some levels, like, is this you know like a an occult temple space thing going on and. I think at the time when I saw it, and this, God, this movie came out eight years ago, nine years ago, uh, but uh, I did get a sense, like, oh, this feels kind of like a Lovecraft thing. It's, I don't know. It's a little weird. And on the uh, the mutated worms, definitely in, in the black goo, like the living corruption, the living mold, definitely felt like a Lovecraft thing. That That's like both a living organism that transfers its essence to other organisms and then you know it kills people and it's like this chain of uh of i don't know like living corruption there's definitely an element of that that was cool but the rest of it was pretty 
stupid. The, the interesting thing is that it's actually, in many respects, that's Scott doing to his prior film what uh, Reddit tried to do. I mean, Reddit in the spiritual sense. Uh, Reddit tried to do to Lovecraft, namely yeah. to systematize and explain things that yes. that should not have ever been explained or should not have ever, you know, tried to be retconned or, you know, create some, uh, yeah, some kind of lore map or something like that. An alien cinematic universe. But I don't want to get too I don't want to get too down the rabbit hole on alien. It was the cats that got me talking about this. Is there anything further, Rudy, you'd like to say about the rats in the walls? I I would I would like or to Titus uh, too. What would you yeah, like? Yeah, just to interject to? very very briefly. This uh, rats in the walls I think uh, is uh, Lovecraft's greatest uh, gothic story, um, and I, I spoke very briefly at the beginning talking about sort of the the synthesis between science fiction and, and sort of uh, gothic uh, fiction um, and and sort of the the two the, those being the two pillars that Lovecraft is drawing from for most of his stories and uh, with with sort of uh, cosmic horror being the synthesis uh, of the two um, this I, I the the first time I read rats in the the walls um, it, it gave me a very uh, Poe feel to it, uh, specifically, you know, fall of the house of Usher. I think there is a lot of, of things that, um, uh, intergenerational sin. Yes. Inter intergenerational sin. And actually I, I, I did some, uh, reading, uh, uh, just sort of on the connections between Poe and this story. And, uh, Della Poor, um, was actually, uh, one of the sort of ancestral names that was linked to Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, one of his uh, family, before his family, like moved over to the United States, um, a portion of his family were, were called the Delapores. So it's a, it is a, a, a nod to uh, to Poe and, and, and his uh, gothic fiction. That's one of the few Lovecraft stories that takes place in a castle. Yes. If the only. Well, yeah. And the other like super gothic one is the outsider that is almost more poetic than it is story-like, you know. Um, and that one wasn't on the list, but it takes place in a castle, and it's from the point of view of this being that's always been in the castle, and he strives to release himself. But, yeah, the rats in the walls, um, uh, I think it was sort of like a uh, prototypical form of uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, you know, because they both share many elements like the as you guys mentioned uh, intergenerational sin um mm. uh, there being some kind of arch warlock character that is secretly keeping an underground uh, facility for black magic uh and then you know the rousing of locals to come and put an end to it now, I'm going to have to make a revision, unfortunately, to the format of the show today, since we've managed, as I as I feared would probably happen, uh, we've managed to go on a long time and only gotten through very few of the lists. So I think what we'll do is, unless Rudy, do you have anything further to say on the rats and the walls? Um, I think we've covered it pretty well. Okay. So what I'm going to do is... I'm going to turn it over to Titus to pick a final story to discuss. It's entirely your choice, Titus, from the list. And the rest of our list, um, 
I think we'll have to be cast into the into the undying void unless people enjoyed this and maybe they want to see a sequel next Halloween. <laughs> but Titus, uh, it's your pick for the last story, and we'll we'll talk about the story and then we'll give some further thoughts on on Lovecraft generally. But sure. you, you pick. So, uh, out of the out of the list of stuff that we were going to talk about, um, so we think... covered Rats in the Walls, Call of yes. Cthulhu, and Horrid Red Hook. Yes. Um, goodness. And I, and I was talking to you, uh, Nick, uh, about this um, just in terms of itemizing uh, favorites of, of my Lovecraft uh, stories. And it's I, I can always narrow it down to, to three, but putting those three in, in any sort of order of favoritism is always hard on my part. Oh, it doesn't I, have to be your favorite. Just pick one oh, you'd like to talk about. Oh yeah, 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 no, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just sort of uh, externally uh, discussing my internal monologue. I have to say, none of <laughs> none of the ones that I've talked about so far are necessarily my favorite. They're just ones I wanted to talk about. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so you know what? Um, because I mentioned sort of like the synthesis of of gothic and science fiction, um, I think I would like for us to talk about. And again, this 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 actually might be my 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 all-time favorite um which would be uh the dreams in the witch house um good choice which, and i will yeah. say for the audience's purpose i i described our our occult methodology at the beginning uh, this was the one story that titus and i had both chosen out of five yeah this is uh and, and again this this is actually a, a a wonderful example of of adam the the question you you raised in terms of sort of the rational um, being sort of uh, the rational mind uh, venturing into the unknown uh, to discover sort of the magic uh, behind everything. Um, this is, I, 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 I it's actually, I'm, I'm there, my mind's racing. There's actually so many things that I want to start off on, but I think I should start off on this. Um, Dreams of the Witch House is one of the best because we all know sort of the uh, geography of Lovecraft, right? We we've all heard of of uh, Dunwich, of Innsmouth, of Arkham. Arkham's well, probably the most. I got my degree, Titus, at Miskatonic University. I am I am wearing my Miskatonic University uh, hoodie as we uh, as we are recording. Uh, believe it or not, uh, graduating of the uh, Elf Department, uh, Elf Literature. Um, PhD in all things forbidden. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so, the Dreams of the Witch House is a really great um, story. Uh, in in uh, excuse me, Dreams of the Witch House. One of the the main characters of it is the city of Arkham. Uh, Arkham as a as a place is really sort of uh, uh, drawn out and and explored in, in a ways that it often isn't the case in, in Lovecraft stories. It's often just mentioning, uh, uh, oh, you know, Arkham, uh, you know, uh, the, the asylum or, 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 uh, the, or the sanitarium, Arkham the city, uh, Miskatonic University. And in a lot of these stories, characters are originally situated in Arkham, and then they sort of go out to the to the hinterlands to discover and fight off these these vague, unknowable threats. Um, Dreams of the Witch House is uh, not unique, but um, I think 
singular in its uh, uh, portrayal of the horror that is living within Arkham. Um, and I just want to, uh, there's a, it's actually, this is a quote from the thing on the doorstep, but I, I, I wanted to just sort of read this out uh, because it's such a great um, example of, of, of Lovecraft painting this fictional city. Um, what lay behind our joint love of shadows and marvels was, no doubt, the ancient, moldering, and subtly fearsome town in which we live. Witch-cursed, legend-haunted Arkham, whose huddled, sagging, gramble roofs and crumbling Georgian bal uh, balustrades brood out the centuries beyond the darkly muttering Miskatonic. As um, Rudy said, uh, Lovecraft often in its sort of, in his world building, often points to the architecture of the place. And that sort of mirrors back the sort of physical or spiritual rot that's taking place. Um, what's important about Arkham in this story and how it mirrors, the, the, the physicality of it mirrors thematically to the story itself is in the timelessness of this city. Um, because the dreams in the witch house is... And it's a lot of things, right? It's it's there is a elder god, there is a a uh, time spanning witch, there is uh, ge uh, geometry that can send people to other dimensions. But more than than anything, in my opinion, there's there's body horror um, with uh, the the familiar. But I think more than 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 anything else, this is a horror a story about time and the inescapable uh, uh, nature of it. Um, that's sort of my my sort of preamble uh, sort of thoughts on it. By all means, uh, uh, if any of Above you the city of tentacled monsters somewhere beyond the galaxy or in the spiral black vortices of that ultimate void of chaos wherein reigns the mindless demon Sultan Azathoth. I think that what's interesting, and it brings us back to something that we were talking about in the beginning, I think that really for Lovecraft himself, if I could be so bold as to speculate, uh, it is the ultimate horror. You know, it's it's found in dreams because as for what it, as for the basis of the cosmos, it's the one the one thing that if it was the foundation, there would be none at all. Right. And it it's. Others would consist of discoverable laws, however strange or, you know, however much they transcend the boundaries of acceptable science, etc. It is the idea that we are subject, that life proceeds in a way subject to a dream that is, I think, for Lovecraft, the ultimate terror, because all these laws then become illusions and they're basically you're at the mercy. Your fate is dictated, you know, by by the furtive. I'm going to keep using it by the furtive caprices of, you know, some retarded God, which in this case is what we're dealing with in the form of Azathoth. What is Azathoth, Titus? Azathoth is the sleeping idiot God uh, whom the moment he wakes up will end uh, all life. 
uh, in the now, universe. Now, I have to say that I cannot help but think that this was uh, something that he was, uh, you know, influenced by or paying homage to. But uh, in the stories of Lord Dunsany, uh, particularly in the Gods of High Pagana, that is the premise is that the, there's this, albeit that god, you, you have essentially a sleeping god who, when he wakes, you know, um, har- is the harbinger of the end of all form. And there is also something of the Gnostic there, is there not? With the idea of a blind idiot god? Hmm? Yeah, I guess uh, Azathoth would be pretty similar to the negative concept of the Demiurge within Gnosticism. And it's also, it, it kind of does seem like a, uh, by placing him that high in the pantheon and somewhat hinting at his um, governing capacity, it seems to be like a jab at anyone who believes in monotheism or like has yes. monotheistic tendencies. It's like, oh yeah, well of course the head honcho is this horrible idiot that is lulled to sleep by this terrible music. And I think I've heard Lovecraft mention hating the sounds of like choir singing. So it's sort of like, that makes sense. And I just, um, I, I wanted to just sort of go, um, go back into just sort of, um, the, the, the sort of the, the nature of, of, I, I don't want to give the plot away. Um, but I think it's, it's really, this story is, is, is such a great encapsulation of, Lovecraft using relying on the old and and explaining it and giving it new meaning by in in in, in by using sort of the the uh, 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 rationalism and scientism of the day to to sort of conjure a new horror of things um, because the the overall you know bare bones no no spoilers because I do want everyone listening to to read this um, the bare bones plot of this is that. Um, there is a, a student of mathematics at Miskatonic and, you know, he, you know, is, is, he starts to become obsessed, um, with this myth, uh, that's, uh, old as Arkham itself. Um, and it's, this is the myth of, of a witch, uh, named, uh, Keziah Mason, um, who was, you know, jailed during the, uh, you know, the Salem trials in the 1600s and, before she was executed, she she disappeared from her jail cell. And, you know, sort of right off the bat of, of the story, you know, Lovecraft is is really very much, um, you know, honing in on sort of like the New England folklore of it. He, he name drops Cotton Mather uh, for those who've read The Crucible. You know, he was a, a you know, a, a real person. He name drops um, Hawthorne, who was actually uh, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, a great American writer was actually one of the um, is a descendant of the the Hawthorne who presided over these uh, uh, witch trials, and what he infuses in sort of the 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 great sort of uh, mythological uh, horror of of Puritan Puritanism and and witchcraft, he adds of out of out of the the planopy of things to add uh, to 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 make this. Uh, modern and 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 horrifying. He adds geometry. He adds math. Um, and 
I think that's such a uh, this I think this is such a, a perfect example of of Lovecraft's genius and his ingenuity um, because he's able to blend uh, you know the the rational with the mythological um, and and he 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 really does create I think this 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 story um, by and large isn't well liked by Lovecraft scholars quote unquote. Um, I think this is, and this is just sort of a, a wonderful example as to uh, not paying much attention or giving much uh, credulity, uh, giving much uh, credibility uh, to those people, because I think this is one of his strongest stories. It's also one of the stories that takes place, or at least I didn't. I mean, his stories tend to take place over over time, but. Uh, some of the key events that take the the stenches that appear upstairs in the witch house appear on Walpurgis Night and Hallowmas. Mm. So it's it's there's a lot of uh, Halloween flavor to this one. And there's also, I mean, you, you mentioned Azathoth. Uh, I would be remiss in not mentioning the other deity that uh, pops up uh, in this story. Uh, probably my favorite. Uh, sort of uh, a deity of, of the Lovecraft uh, pantheon, and that would be uh, Naralothotep, uh, the black man, uh, the, the ancient Egyptian uh, god of, uh, of chaos. He, uh, he pops up and, uh, you know, again, not to, I don't want, I really do, I genuinely do not want to, to spoil uh, because I do think the ending is, is pretty great. Um, but he, uh, him and uh, his follower who, this uh, this mysterious witch who disappeared. She's a follower of Nirlathotep. They try and seduce uh, and uh, beguile uh, young Walter Gilman um, into uh, into joining in their rights. The crawling chaos. Crawling chaos. Well, what I really enjoy about Dreams in the Witch House is how Lovecraft. Uh, basically retconned uh, wit like American witchcraft. Yep. It was like it was like, hey, actually, what if they were all just worshiping the same deities instead of, you know, Satan or the other various principalities of hell? But then it's funny too, because Lovecraft will mention um, you know, uh, Asmodeus and uh, Belial in in relation to Azathoth and Narlathotep and Yog Sothoth. So it's, you know, you're wondering if it's just a literary device or if he kind of had the intention of, oh, they exist in this world as well. But ultimately, like we've said several times in this talk, it's better if it's left unknown and just kind of open for you to speculate on. And what's what's great is that um, because Narlathotep is not named, I, I don't believe he's actually named that in this story. Um, he's just referred to as as this giant um, sort of onyx-colored bald man, um, which is really great because during the Salem witch trials, um, the 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 condemned referred to going out into the woods to meet this giant black man, and the Puritans, the Puritan Christians, just believed that that was the devil. But again, it's it's sort of reworking, you know. Uh, uh, New England mythology, Lovecraft sort of twists that and say, well, no, that actually wasn't Satan. It's actually Nyarlathotep, who's infinitely more devious and cunning. 
And it's interesting that he he uh, came out of Egypt, as it said, because it was, what's the line? It's then that uh, Nilothotep came out of Egypt. That's not in dreams. Uh, but it's interesting to note because he's coming out of what was a fallen civilization. Yes. Into the new world. He's an, a harbinger of... of of chaos and destruction. I the actually, the cycle I, continues. If, if you, if uh, you would permit me just to read a description of him, because I do think it's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, a figure he had never seen before, a tall lean man of dead black coloration, but without the slightest sign of Negroid features, wholly devoid of either hair or beard and wearing only his garment, a shapeless robe of some heavy black fabric. His feet were indistinguishable because of the table of the bench, but he must have been, uh, but he must have been shod, since there was a clicking whenever he changed position. The man did not speak and bore no trace of expression on his small, regular features. He merely pointed to a book of prodigious size which lay open on the table. He's a powerful writer, man. I mean, yeah. I think that that's that's kind of there's a lot of Lovecraft stories that are held up. I think more or less just by the virtue of his prose. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not a big fan, for example, of Color Out of Space, uh, just as far as the plot goes. But I think it's a beautifully written story. I think uh, I I I agree with you. It's it's not one of my favorites, but I I would uh, say that the closing monologue uh, about the uh, <laughs> about uh, Arkham. Uh, inevitably drinking uh the water of the blessed heath is one of the best closing monologues in uh in in all of horror fiction i think yeah i, yeah, would, I think I would, it's I would agree. probably his tightest short story um it's just so well paced and plotted and as you said beautifully written i always tell people to read that one first because it's it also doesn't really ironically have as many lovecraftian elements which sometimes turns people off because they, they want things to be, you know, just laid out for them, like flat out. Like, I don't understand. Like why, what do you mean? It's, it's, it's a bunch of like evil malevolent bubbles. Like how is that a frightening being? A part of the, I mean, part of the horror again is the fact that it's, it's, that you're the people trying to reckon with this are people of that you know western scientific disposition so they they want to systematize they want yes. the knowledge and yes. it's the fact that it either eludes them or when they get it maybe it's they realize that perhaps they didn't want it after all <laughs> well if i can represent those uh materialistic scientific people that are uh, sometimes misunderstood at the best. Um, I, I'm I'm very uh, impressed by your guys's um, understanding and passion for this author. I can definitely understand it uh, myself a little bit more now. Uh, I think there is a good lesson uh, contained within uh, studying and imbibing the philosophy of this man, if you can even ascribe a systematized philosophy to it. I think the lesson for me is just humility. Uh, you do not know uh, everything, and you cannot know everything. And there is an element in life that requires a leap of faith. 
Uh, and perhaps that what that's what makes life worth living is that everything is not figured out. Um, and I think you, you hear this in a lot of, uh, you know, theological disciplines as well is that you are never really at Nirvana, you know, uh, it, it's, it's sort of a never ending quest and that's part of the, the point. Um, it, it also strikes me as well, Rudy was pointing this out earlier that the focus of the author seems to be on the negative, uh, very much on the dark sides of, of things that are not visible. And, I don't know if that's just a a figment of his personality that he's just a very pessimistic guy or he's trying to shock you into believing alternatives. And and usually it's more effective to conjure up the, the horrific and terrible to get that notion across. I don't know what, uh, what his real opinions were, uh, or, or views. It just seems to be certainly, uh, if there is something out there, it seems to be bad. That seems to be what his worldview was. Well, it was something that was not often considered, um, or at least not, it wasn't something that was permitted to be discussed. Um, so it, it, he is very much an American. And I know that, for example, that James LaFon likes to frame because Lovecraft and Howard were friends. I mean, Howard was a great admirer of his and vice versa. And Lafon, the way Lafon frames it is that Howard was more representing the anti-civilization perspective and Lovecraft the pro-civilization perspective. There's some level of reduction there insofar as, uh, you know, you can find Lovecraft himself talking about admiring the the barbarian outside of Rome, but he considered himself in many respects a Roman, you know, a man and Rome being, of course, the apotheosis of civilization. Uh, he, he considered himself a, a civilized man and he's exploring. And, and the way I look at it is what he's exploring is the things that lie outside of it on the frontiers of the mind of, of the real, of the possible and of the, the physical frontiers what lies outside the gates. Well, uh, hordes of mongrels, is what lies outside the gates and if you let them in they will degrade and malform everything around them until it becomes you know a hideous monstrosity in their image i think i think that's that's a a beautifully put i i also i i would you know uh be remiss to not mention sort of the the nietzschean elements of lovecraft i think uh lovecraft was uh, a big admirer of uh, of nietzsche and there is that uh you know, again, we are we are he is writing within the confines of, of horror fiction. Um, so there is that, of course, that 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 pessimism, which I do believe was was real for him. But at the same point, um, his characters, the protagonists of the story, the story, uh, the, the characters that we are supposed to empathize and, and root for did not hide uh behind their, uh, you know, behind their desks. They they went out and ventured forth into the world and. If they met uh, a terrible demise, if they uh, were driven mad and insane, um, it was through their actions and and their their willpower to to overcome what can only be described as inconceivable, um, and and they tried to do it anyway. So I think that's that's a positive aspect that you can that yeah. you can glean from his stories. And I think I stated this in one form or another prior, but again, it's the mirror to 
an aspect of the, or to the, I think the most faithful aspect to the Aryan spirit, namely that that pursuit of, of man, of Aryan man, of ordering the world and understanding, coming to know the cosmos and know his relationship to it. The idea that that pursuit could be turned on its head by discovering that the further that you go, the closer that you you come to actual chaos rather than a higher understanding of order. And as for the Nietzschean element, I would say that uh, in some cases, the forces that you're tangling with are malicious. However, in arguably in more cases, what they are is indifferent. And that is to say that they are beyond human conceptions of good and evil. They may they may appear in their form grotesque to us, but that does not necessarily make them evil. They are they're representative of, of beings and forms and intelligence that is possible or existent in the cosmos that is beyond man's frame of reference for all moral conception. Right. So I, I, I suppose in that regard that Lovecraft might say that that the good is what that which is good for mankind and mm. anything that any extraneous bit of knowledge, no matter how how hard fought it was, if it only serves to drag us down, then it's actually bad. Um, and that's, I think that's, that's one of the like lasting. Well, now, like in in the year twenty twenty, one of the most relevant things, like going back through Lovecraft for the first time in about a decade, is that he was so acutely aware of degeneration, as as Adam was saying that that things are constantly on a precipice. And if you're not aware of all of the different factors of what it takes to have a great society, then it can just disappear just like Rome did. And, and constantly being aware of Rome's greatness, one has to be aware of how great their fall was. And you're all bringing everything to some kind of golden age. And now, I mean, well, everyone knows what everything is like now. So it's, I think in every regard, Lovecraft was proven basically correct. Well, just to just to go back to the first story that we discussed, um, Cthulhu isn't a demon. He isn't an evil entity. It's just that his incredible power would, if he would would to to rise from his tomb, it, it would it would just devour uh, all of all of humanity within a within an instant without him even registering uh you know our existence um so yeah i i think that the you know the 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 ending of of cthulhu as uh, the ending of of uh, the call of cthulhu as as well as as uh all of the other um endings of his stories when the the great sort of primordial being is sort of shunted back into the depths or, 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 or into the void, um, we are supposed to breathe a, a side of relief. We're not, we're not cheering on the destruction of, 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 of mankind and of, of reality. Lovecraft wouldn't want us to do that. He would, he would have us breathe a sigh of relief and worry about the next time <laughs> but the Titus, possibility of that, uh, erupts. But Titus, uh, that is not dead, which can eternal lie. And even with strange aeons, death itself may die. Be ever ready, folks. Ever ready. Would you like to talk just briefly about the recent uh, HBO production? <laughs> oh. 
I don't. I, don't? I honestly, I, 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 I wouldn't. Um, I, I've again, like, I, I, I don't. I didn't even bother to like. I've seen a few clips. Uh, I haven't. I haven't on watched. I, there's only one observation I really want to make. Sure. Um, so for people who don't know, there was a HBO production called Lovecraft Country that's about Jigaboos. Okay. And like I knew, like I didn't know anything about the details of this, but just looking at it, like the stills, the thumbs, the plot, and everything, I knew it was written by a white man. Like it was just so painfully obvious. And I looked it up, and of course it was. Now, what I think is funny about this, and what's interesting, is that I think that the existence of this film or series or whatever is actually, from a meta perspective, a true piece of Lovecraftian horror. Yes. Thoughts on yeah. this? Yeah. Yeah. No. I. I mean, it, it's uh, what that uh, the culture would sink to such depths that it could yeah, produce yes, such the, an abomination and try alien, to sell it as something good. Yeah. Yeah. That the, the dark shambling forms that crawled out of the Near East or from the dark continent would come to capture the imagination of white people to the point that they would. Uh, pervert one of the greatest white authors of the 20th century in the name of necrology. Well, it's actually really, like, really, like, painfully poignant because there's this aspect of his one story, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, where this evil warlock is using ancient alchemy to take the, what, what are referenced as the essential salts of humans so it's like their ashy remains like or you know whatever bit of corpse is left after someone's been in a coffin for hundreds of thousands of years and he gets the essential remains of like great sages from the past and he brings up their shades and effectively tortures them into giving him their esoteric secrets and that's literally what they're doing to lovecraft they're just yes. like whipping his shade and <laughs> it's just yeah, it is. It is essentially Lovecraftian, and it's also strange that they decided to give his cat his own show. That's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not fair to Nigger Man. Uh, conversely, uh, just because I I, I I am a weeb, so I, I'd be remiss without saying uh, this. Uh, if you're looking for modern uh, uh, retellings of Lovecraft that are uh, good. Um, I would check out uh, the works of Junji Ito. Uh, he's uh, he does his own thing, but he's very, very much inspired. Uh, so there's a lot by... of tentacles in that, eh, Titus? Well, well, no, actually, uh, there's spirals, actually, uh, not tentacles. Um, but uh, one that does involve tentacles would be uh, Annie Naramuno, which I would also recommend uh, because my wife is in it. So I wanted to uh, give a shout out to her. Wait, so I, I gotta ask. So like, does does the fact that you mentioned earlier that uh, it hadn't really been translated that much into Japanese until recently. I do know that there's a Japanese film uh, that I haven't been able to get my hands on because it's it can't I can't find it digitally. I won a Lovecraft Festival in like 2004. So I know that it's seeped into, into Nippon, but I'm just wondering the fact that maybe all that all that tentacle stuff that they were up to, is, is that a sign that like great Cthulhu will awaken from the island of the rising sun is that is that how we can take that to mean something stirring in the 
in the waters. Oh, that's the that's the reference to the raid sun on that pre-Roman sacrificial. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's the Japanese flag. The plot thickens. <laughs> Like a Japanese guy is like, oh, if I saw Cthulhu, I would simply eat him. <laughs> Go, not, not oh, frightening. Oh, the elder gods, mmm, delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Deep ones, don't mind if I do. Snack. Truly ascendant. <laughs> but yeah, just in terms of like recommending, uh, and like you know. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, gearheads like like Adam who listen to the show and who might not even have heard of of HP Lovecraft. I I would like to just sort of recommend just as uh, the the most basic entry story of Lovecraft's, uh, and this was on one of the ones that I wanted to talk about. Um, but it's a very 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 short story. It's uh, actually about the 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 elder god that. Uh, um, makes an appearance in Dreams of the Witch House. It's called Near Lothotep. You can just... Uh, and, uh, yeah. dear listener, that is what you heard the new initiate into the Eldritch Mysteries yes. say for you at the opening of this program. At the opening, at the opening of the program, yes. It's only like two or three pages long, um, but if you, if, you, if, you, if you dare to, uh, to read it and it's your thing, if you're intrigued, by all means, uh, leap on in. The water is... Uh, cold and uh full of uh things that go bump in the night when they wake up adam's gonna like wake up tonight and he's just gonna be speaking in tongues that have long vanished into the abyss of time i have to confess something about my dreams they're rarely positive um and uh i don't think they verge on the uh supernatural typically but they um they do have a sort of character to them that i guess would make sense if you've listened to us for four years now is that uh, I mistrust things and I appreciate an author or a thinker or a, a person who questions things and so perhaps the portal of my mind is trying to answer things that just can't quite figure out in the rational realm well that is the true Aryan spirit the pursuit of knowledge and order against the chaos and superstitions and dogmatisms of the people of the desert and of the jungle. Your your chakras are aligned, Adam, whether you know it or not. Yeah, yeah, Cthulhu Fatagan. Funglui, Maglu, Naf, Cthulhu. Cthulhu, rely. Fatagan. Thank you.